0: It's always an interesting experience for me to endeavor to be coherent for 45 minutes on the first night of a retreat when I feel the sort of haze of jet lag covering over the frontal lobe. So please uh, be patient with me. (laughs) I'm given to understand that the most frequently repeated Dharma word in the early texts is the word sati. Now, this is a word that is usually translated as mindfulness. However, mindfulness, I think, doesn't always capture the fullness of this word sati a quality that we are all cultivating here within our practice. Probably the most accurate translation of sati is a present moment recollection. Present moment recollection. In this, sati has, so it is recollecting to be here. It has that connotation of remembering, remembering where we are, recollecting where we are, recollecting what is actually occurring. There are many dimensions to this word sati, and and in fact, uh, you know, offhand I can think of about 20 metaphors uh, that are used for it. One aspect of sati is uh, sometimes is presented as a kind of simple awareness. And I think this refers to the kind of the attention aspect of sati. You know, the simple capacity to attend, to pay attention to one thing at a time skillfully and intentionally. Another aspect of sati is a protective awareness. So part of sati, notice the difference between the word protective and defensive, very important. So this protective awareness is not about protecting ourselves from the world, but it's actually learning to be a guardian of our own mind and heart. From what, we might ask? Well, pretty much from the assault of our own repetitive and habitual patterns and impulses that actually lead to distress and anguish. So this is part of sati, is building up this protective capacity of awareness. Another aspect of sati is an introspective awareness. And the, the kind of example of that is used here is that of a surgeon's probe. That with sati, we kind of probe the area of distress or the wound in order to discern what is actually wrong, what the problem is. In that probing, we actually also begin to discern the prognosis. And we begin to discern what is needed to bring about that healing. So this is a kind of discernment element of sati. Another dimension of sati is concerned with reframing perception. Almost uh, Think about how I'll give you a simple example of this that uh, you're sitting... Uh, You hear a sound in the background, and you have a sense of invasion or intrusion, and then you realize somebody's doing their best actually to take a mosquito out of the walking room Mm -hmm. with that kind of reframing perception. It is also a reflective awareness. It it involves a quality of reflection, investigation. So these are the kind of, it's pretty hard to sum all of that up in the word mindfulness, isn't it? However, so when we think of the word mindfulness, it's very, very important to consider all of these different aspects of what sati is. Now, I probably, like countless other people, uh, endeavor to come up with some really useful definition of mindfulness in, in English um, to, to find words that actually really fully represent the depth and the breadth of what is meant by this word sati. And I think this is an ongoing exploration. I find every year I sort of come up with some new way of expressing that, and I think, oh, I've got it. You know, and then I realized, no, it's not quite good enough, you know, and the next year i have another one. So I want to share with you my current working definition of sati, bearing in mind that it could be completely different next year. But my current working definition of sati is, is the willingness and the capacity to be equally present with all events and experiences with curiosity, with kindness, and with discernment. So what I would like to do this evening is to actually expand and to explore on that working definition through the medium of some of the stories or the turning points that are actually described or narrated in the life of the Buddha. Now, as I do this, it's very important, first of all, to recognize we don't take these stories necessarily literally. Hmm? They are teaching stories. So as teaching stories, they are really an invitation to, to look, listen to the story or to listen to the narration of an event And then to take that into our own experience and to think, well, you know, what does that mean for me? How does that apply to my journey, my pathway, my life? Secondly, in in listening to some of these teaching stories, I would really encourage you to not particularly romanticize or idealize the figure of the Buddha. But instead to see the journey of a young man, Siddhartha, as pretty much representing the journey many of us make in our lives. In a very real way, uh, the story of Siddhartha's journey as we inherit it, by the way, it's not necessarily particularly accurate the way we inherit it. But it is in a way, it's a very universal story. It's a human story. It's a timeless story. It's a story of, of really understanding this life that we're living, how we came to be, where and who we are in this life. So much, I think, of this path is, is really concerned with taking the sense of bewilderment and mystification out of life. And I think this is a real gift of Buddhist psychology, because it's really concerned with understanding process, with understanding how our worlds are being constructed moment to moment. And bewilderment is is a very difficult experience. You know, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in some great psychological or emotional storm or... Life storm or chaos, and, and have that sense of, I don't know how this happened. You know, I just don't know how I ended up here. And I think part of what this teaching is concerned with is actually learning that we can take that sense of bewilderment out. We come to know very clearly how we end up where we are. And that's good news. You know, that's not bad news, that's good news. Because if we come to understand how we came to be, how and who we believe ourselves to be in this moment, we can also begin to understand what is helpful to cultivate. Many of these teaching stories are really about learning how to embrace the fullness of our life with compassion and grace, with how to understand the struggle and the confusion that can exist in our hearts and minds, to understand how that comes to be and how it comes to an end. This is the place of sati. It is the place of mindfulness. So sati is never presented as being an end in itself, but it's a vehicle. It's a vehicle for understanding hmm? and for being able to come to see for ourselves the turning points that are offered to us in every moment, the ways that we can learn to walk new pathways of kindness and awareness and insight. Now, the story of Siddhartha's life as we inherited it tells us about a a young person who's born in India at that time, some 2,500 years ago, born into a family of some privilege. With a father, as many loving parents do, going to great and heroic lengths to protect and to shield Siddhartha from the harshness of life. And his father, as the story goes, did his best to surround his child with endless pleasures, safety, certainties, distractions, so that Siddhartha would in some way be shielded from anything that was disquieting, unpleasant or disturbing. I often think about this, this teaching story as how it applies to our own lives. I think sometimes if we just look back over a single day, we can think of how, how often in small and large ways we are involved in the endeavor to rearrange conditions. So as not to experience the unpleasant and to have as much pleasant as we can. This is a kind of lifetime dedication, isn't it? You know? I just need a, a different cushion, you know, a little bit cooler, a little bit warmer, a little bit more salt, a little bit less honey, you know. Uh, you know it, it's a kind of a lifelong endeavor. It, in fact, it's so Become so naturalized. We don't even notice often how much we are involved in this rearrangement of conditions. But actually it takes a lot of planning. (laughs) It takes a lot of strategizing, doesn't it? You know, the person we're going to sit beside and who we walk beside and where we walk and how quickly we get to the dining room and You know, the best place to sit there and, you know, what work period, you know, if we get here early enough, we might get... I mean, it takes a lot of strategizing. It actually takes a lot of planning. But it also means that we're often living in this heightened state of alert, aren't we? We're often living in this heightened state of alert in case anything, even slightly unpleasant, never mind really disturbing... In case anything slightly unpleasant is just hanging out there in the wings, you know. We've got to be in that heightened state of alert to protect ourselves. So what Siddhartha's father was doing, he was promoting a certain kind of mythology around the first ennobling truth. Many of you will be familiar with the four ennobling truths. But the, for those of you who aren't, the first ennobling truth, which is very central to this path, is that there is unsatisfactoriness in this life? It's hmm? so a first only truth. It's a whole spectrum there, you know, from the mildly disturbing to, uh, you know, aging, sickness, and death is included in here, loss, disappointment, um, you know, not getting what we want, not being in control. You know, it's a kind of a big spectrum, first ennobling truth. But guess what? Siddhartha's father was promoting the mythology. Siddhartha was exempt, He was exempt, that if he could just plan enough, that he could just rearrange things enough, he wasn't going to be touched by this. Now this is a kind of uh, obviously very difficult mythology. And yet we can probably also recognize the ways in which this mythology can kind of operate in the way our own minds work. That somehow we should be exempt from change, from disturbance, from loss, from disappointment. And the way that we know that we have this mythology is when we hear ourselves saying the words, this shouldn't be happening. It is happening. But when we hear our saying in ourselves, this shouldn't be happening. A student I I worked with some years ago, she, she said something so telling. She said when she was suddenly faced with a catastrophic illness in her life, she said the moment that she could stop saying, why is this happening to me? and could say, why would this not happen to me? That that was the moment that healing began. So this is actually talking about a quality of alignment with the first ennobling truth, which is part of all of our lives. None of us are exempt. No matter how skillful we are in our strategies, and our rearrangements. It is a quality of aligning ourselves. Uh, it, it's almost a, in psychologists, have this word like discrepancy thinking, you know, the kind of gap between how things are and how we think they should be. It's kind of healing that discrepancy thinking, it's coming closer to the simple truths of this life. This is a very powerful turning point for many of us. This is not about resignation. Certainly not about endurance. But it is about, actually, this is where we plant the seeds of understanding. This is where we plant the seeds of compassion, the seeds of kindness, the seeds of peace. This quality of alignment, we might even call it a very, very deep acceptance, is, is, a, is a quality of kindness, I think. Because I think it's a kindness of bringing to an end so much of the agitation that's involved in the denial of the first ennobling truth. And there is a lot of agitation at that. One of the first of Siddhartha's turning points illustrated in story form, of course, came, and many of you are familiar with this story, came when as a young man he ventured beyond the walls of his familial home, the home that had shielded him and encountered what are called the four heavenly messengers. He saw a person who was ill, saw a person frail and stooped with age, He saw a body of someone who died. And each time he turned to his companion and asked, you know, will this also happen to me? I mean, you can see why this is a teaching story, can't you? Because it's kind of a ridiculous question. But, uh, you know, will this also happen to me? Hmm? He also saw in the crowd the face of a person who who was just really imbued with radiance and peace, a, a kind of seeker of freedom. And that, I think, was a moment in the teaching stories when Siddhartha really began to meet life as it is, to know that he was not an exception. It's the beginning of the willingness part of sati. The willingness to be present with all events and experiences equally, to put down the resistance level, which is so painful. And as the story goes, Siddhartha left the palace, but I think this is much more a metaphorical statement of leaving the palace of his illusions. Mm-hmm. Leaving the palace of the illusions that somehow, if he just controlled enough and strategized enough, that he would be protected from life. And in that leaving, Siddhartha began to explore to uh, another way of being with with life, the simple, sometimes difficult truths, other than distraction and avoidance. And in those early years, Siddhartha went in search of a te- teacher. And it's very important to acknowledge the spiritual climate that existed in India at that time, as we understand it. That most spiritual seekers in the time of the Buddha were involved in a path of transcendence, where life, was essentially something to get out of. Where the body, the mind, passions, connections, relationships, were all somehow seen as a kind of obstacle to be overcome, to be transcended, to be disconnected from. And in the time of the Buddha, as we understand it, many of the pathways of spirituality at that time involved a a lot of... um, mortification practices. A a lot of ways of, of kind of mortifying the body as a way of kind of getting out of the body. And the Siddhartha very much took up these practices, as we understand, starving himself to a point of emaciation, engaging in practices to suppress the mind. The primary practices in India at that time were concentration practices. And you could sort of, and you can very much have a lot of sympathy with this, you know, because you can really see that time in Indian life must have been really very difficult and very challenging. And so, uh, think of what happens in our life when we meet the very difficult and the very challenging. We'd like to get out. We'd like to get out. And if we can do that by so concentrating our minds and, and creating you know, very transcendent experiences, it's the most accessible way to get out when nothing else is available. I think we see the echoes of this. What is your first reaction to the painful or the unpleasant uh, it's not so difficult, isn't it? It's almost hardwired into us. Flee. You know, avoid. Get away from this. Overcome this. But we also see how that turns into a habit pattern, even when it's not appropriate. Most times when it's not appropriate. And we see this in our culture, don't we, in this uh, growing epidemic of addictions and and self-harm, you know, that desperate desire just to get out of what's happening. Finding a way to end pain. This is really understandable that many of these routes are taken when we don't understand or have access to any other pathways of understanding pain and the unpleasant and learning to find balance and equanimity and wisdom and compassion within it. But what we don't always see is in the agitation of avoidance, the way that we heap pain upon pain, suffering upon suffering. Aversion actually has very few successful outcomes in my experience. I, mean, I don't know about you, but I really don't have much of a record of success with aversion. Yeah, she doesn't make anything go away. It just makes you feel miserable while you're trying to make things go away. Hmm? What we see is what aversion does, and it's interesting. This word aversion, isn't it? It's not. There's many words we use in the Dharma that are English language words that we hardly ever use in our culture. I mean, how many? When's the last time you said I was a you know aversion? You know, it's kind of like we talk about, I don't like something, or you know, uh, we have other squirm words. Aversion, resistance, intolerance, uh, impatience, frustration, judgment, blame, um, avoidance, pushing away. This is all aversion. Okay, it's a big spectrum word. Okay. What we see is many times actually the aversion layer is actually more painful than the thing we're trying to avoid. We see that the psychological and the emotional distress within that contractedness. And that often only leaves fear and agitation in its wake. So Siddhartha actually had a few insights which were quite useful at that time. He actually saw that this whole pathway of self-mortification and, 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 and suppression and transcendence didn't bring the freedom of heart he was really seeking for. But it was not entirely a waste of time those years, as he recounts earlier. Because he really spoke about in those years how in the trainings he undertook, all this training in collectedness, the training in attention, the training in, in training his mind, to, to be focused and one pointed. Because when you look at po- pre and post Bodhi tree uh, experiences that the Buddha speaks about, you know, this is the one that goes pre Bodhi tree and post Bodhi tree as being this capacity to collect, to unify, to a mind in one pointedness, in wise attention. But there is more than that. Mindfulness begins with our willingness to turn towards what is. And we see that this willingness to turn towards what is is also a capacity that we train. I often think about the tension in waking up. You know, that we're actually, you know, think about what you're doing here today, you know, really kind of trying to train our attention to be here, to remember, to, to recall, to, to be present, and how that's sitting alongside a whole lot of really lifelong historical habits of distractedness and forgetfulness and impulsiveness. So what we actually see here is we're actually developing a kind of capacity. It's what I call almost like the muscle of sati. It's a capacity we develop, you know, and and every time you come back from those places of forgetfulness, you're actually working that muscle. You're developing that sense of capacity for present moment recollection. And it's an intentional one, isn't it? And this intentional development of capacity actually really does begin to free the mind and to free the heart from the grip of impulse and habit and reactivity. But after years of this kind of practice only focusing on concentration and, and, and one-pointedness, the Buddha resolved to travel a different pathway because he actually saw very clearly this wasn't bringing the kind of freedom that he really sought for. And yet so weakened was his body by these years of abuse that the story tells us that he just collapsed near death. And a young woman, Nanda, called Nanda, saw him on the riverbank and offered him food. And this story is very highlighted because it actually points towards something so crucial in sati, which is the attitudinal element. In that, being able to receive that offering, that opening of the door to actually the power of kindness. That actual power of kindness, being able to receive that, and really realizing that kindness was not a sac- is not a sacrifice of aspiration, but it's the very, very foundation of all aspirations. And the Buddha resolved in that, those moments, apparently, to care for the body. It is so, so significant to understand that mindfulness sati is not attitudinally ne- neutral, if if sati is the capacity to turn towards what is, the kindness element of sati is to befriend what is turned towards. Think about how, what a shift that is inwardly, rather than judging or blaming or condemning, to befriend what is turned towards. And that means all things. You know, not just the lovely, the difficult, the challenging, the painful, this is here. Can it be befriended? I think it is really because of the alternative is to turn away with fear and aversion. I think it is really important to, to acknowledge that without kindness, you know, what does mindfulness look like without kindness? Like a cold stare of attention. What does kindness look like without mindfulness? A kind of sentimentality. For many of us, you know, the most significant shift I ever, ever see in people in all the years I've been teaching and practicing is this shift from aversion to kindness. I've, I'd never see a bigger one. Because aversion is always engaged in dissociation, disconnection, in fear, in isolation. And to be able to shift from aversion to befriending, that is actually beginning to taste a genuine sense of freedom. Kindness is also a capacity we cultivate. It's not something that suddenly befalls a fortunate few. It is a training. It is a development. And where do we train in kindness? No surprise. I'm sure you all have the answer here. In all of the places where there is aversion. All of the places where there is disconnection. No one is asked to love pain. We don't even have to like it. But we may be able to stand near to it. As the stories go on, the, often the next story that comes in this sequence of stories is a story about Siddhartha after you know, kind of restoring himself a, a bit. Remember the time when as a young man he was sitting on a hillside watching over his father's fields and seeing a farmer plowing the fields. And remembering a very unexpected sense of profound peace arising. A a real sense that there was nothing to get rid of, that there was nothing lacking, nothing missing, but a genuine sense of inner completeness and contentment and peace. And... This was a significant present moment recollection of Siddhartha's and a significant turning point as he began really to understand for himself that the sources of joy and the sources of sorrow actually lay within his own heart. Yes, there are difficulties, real difficulties in life. There are real adversities, real injustices to be addressed. But it is, but the sources of joy and the sources of sorrow are in our own hearts. And he saw that as long as he externalized the source of joy and sorrow, projected those sources onto people, onto events, onto conditions, he was actually going to be always living an agitated life, pursuing the pleasant, thinking it was going to make him happy, avoiding the unpleasant. And at this point, I would really invite you to ask of yourself, what are your own beliefs about happiness? What are your own beliefs about what is needed for you to be happy? What is needed for you to be truly peaceful? What kind of beliefs do we each hold in our mind around that? And how easily do we go to places that say, well, if I just got rid of this, or I just had this, or I managed to get this, or achieve this, or erase that, then I would be happy. See how easily we go into investing the world of events and conditions, people, experiences as holding that power to make us happy or unhappy. Do, do we see what happens in that? We become a hostage and a prisoner of the world of conditions. This is what Siddhartha saw so clearly and what the Buddha taught so clearly. That the well-being of our heart can only be shattered As long as that externalization of joy and sorrow takes place. I think. Siddhartha very much recognized in himself the potentiality of the human mind, human consciousness, the potentiality that our minds have, our hearts have, to be a source of such torment and confusion and struggle and fear. But it's the same mind and heart that equally holds the potential to be the source of profound calm and clarity and joy and compassion. Siddhartha recognized, very much as we do, that there's little predetermined, fixed, or static about our minds. Have you noticed this? Mm? We talk about mind as if it's a thing. My mind. It's a process. It's a process. We don't have a mind, you know. We have a process that's endlessly changing, being shaped by so many conditions every moment, you know. The conditions of our body, conditions of our environment. The mind is constantly being shaped and formed by by conditions. And we see that as long as the mind is being shaped by the conditions of aversion, agitation, fear, anxiety, dukkha or anguish will be created and recreated moment to moment. But this mind also has the capacity to be shaped by the conditions of understanding, of insight, of compassion, of care, of mindfulness, and dukkha comes to an end. It is so easy. Later on in the Buddha's life, you know, he gave this teaching. that says, you know, all experiences led by mind, made by mind, preceded by mind. With our thoughts, we make the world, and all that we are arises with our thoughts. Think on that one. That's a big one. There was a German philosopher who said it somewhat differently. He says, "I've, I've come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element." It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de-escalated and a person humanized or dehumanized. I think in the light of this insight, what Siddhartha did was to begin to put down this tendency to flee, to flee the experiences being constructed within his own mind. He stopped fleeing from discontent, from struggle, from emotional torment. He stopped fleeing into the avenues of endlessly looking for solutions or how do I fix this or get rid of this. And this is actually the stopping fleeing was the insight that took Siddhartha to the Bodhi tree. To take his seat in the midst of all experience, take his seat amidst the experiences of his body, his mind, his emotions, everything that he'd previously tried to overcome and transcend. And perhaps this was really the beginning of Sati. The moment when all strategies had been exhausted. And Siddhartha kinda of held up in his hand and said, you know. Maybe it's actually really important to understand what's actually going on here. This is what we're doing. It's what we're doing right here. Maybe it's important to understand what's actually going on here. The base core principle of sati is to turn towards rather than away from but with kindness, with curiosity, with investigation, to begin to discern for ourselves in our own hearts and minds what it is that leads to torment and struggle and anguish, and what it is that leads to the end of struggle. And torment and anguish, Siddhartha took his seat in a very intentional way. I would mention, by the way, this is how we hear the story. he didn 't take his seat in his body under the bodhi chain and say, "Well i 'll stay as long as it 's not too hot, or you know, there 's not too many mosquitoes or I don't get hungry, or you know, as long as there 's not any distraction. You know try sitting in Asia if you think there 's just a way of being without distractions. You know? I mean, it didn 't sit that way. he sat with a sense of resolve. More, even more than intention. Quality of commitment to his own freedom. That quality of resolve. And began to understand some of these links, that mindfulness is more than just looking at something. Mindfulness is concerned with understanding what we're looking at. Wouldn't it be awful if what we are doing here just gave us a greater enhanced awareness of our own misery. I mean imagine putting that on a brochure. <laughs> Come on, retreat, and have a magnified sense of your own chaos, you know. Is actually concerned with actually understanding, not just seeing. So the the Buddha very much made these things between mindfulness and insight, but also mindfulness and wise effort. Mm -hmm. Because not just about being a passive spectator upon our own disasters, it's actually recognizing in every moment of our life we are practicing something. And maybe we have choices about what we practice. Mm -hmm. We're either practicing habits and impulses and just old, old stuff. Or we actually can practice something else. Kindness, investigation, clarity, discernment, curiosity, compassion. Recognizing something is always being practiced. And the whole of this path is is really concerned with not just looking at something, but what is being practiced. And even more than that, what is being cultivated? What is being cultivated? You know, the word for meditation in Pali is bhavana, which means to cultivate, to bring into being. So what are we cultivating? All the qualities of heart and mind, all of the understandings that lead to... To greater freedom, that lead to greater compassion, greater grace, and the story goes, you know, the Buddha didn't sit under the Bodhi tree and just had a great time, you know. I mean, the story goes he sat with all of the multiplicity of difficulties that a human mind can experience, and if you listen to the stories under the Bodhi tree and what the Buddha talked about was going on, his mind looks a lot like ours. Talked about how sensual craving arose, you know, and aversion, and agitation, and sloth, and torpor, and restlessness, and of course overwhelming doubt, you know, and all of this is summed up in this word Mara, which is meant to sort of represent this kind of tangled knot of confusion that we've all had a little taste of now and again. You know, there's two versions of this story, of, of the Buddha under the Bodhi tree. You get the heroic version. You know, the heroic version is that, you know, Mara attacks Siddhartha with everything it had, you know. And, of course, it's all good Buddha stories. It's got a happy ending, you know, that the Buddha was so powerful and so intent, firmly resolved that Mara slunk away in defeat. That's a heroic story. I think there's another way of that story is told where... Siddhartha sat and he saw aversion and he saw agitation and he saw craving and he saw ill will and his doubt and he looked him in the eye and he said I know you I know you that's simple And in that knowing, in the face of that knowing and understanding, the arrows of Mara couldn't wound, couldn't harm, couldn't land. This is an important shift because it is a story about non-identification. It's a story about non-identification. And this is a shift we make in our own practice. Instead of Siddhartha being in the midst of all of these tangled knot of confusion and saying, I'm fearful and I'm anxious and I'm I'm aversive and I'm I'm a failure and I'm worried, was able to say, fear is fear. Anxiety is anxiety. Worry is worry. Doubt is doubt. It's really representing this important, significant, liberating shift from I am to this is. This is happening. Think about how that applies to us in our practice, and in our life, how easily we're prone to move into the I am, defining ourselves by the contents of our experience. We cannot be defined by the contents of our experience. Experience in the mind, in the heart, arises and passes like all phenomena. The movement of clinging to that, identifying, creating an I am, is creating a very small world, a very finite world for ourselves. And much of the work of, the, of Sati is actually undoing that finiteness, moving into this sense of just knowing, knowing, I know you, I know you. The Buddha, Siddhartha, saw for himself how the cycles of distress are created, recreated, moment to moment, only in the absence of sati and understanding. And saw so there was really the possibility of bringing distress to an end, just as none of us are exempt from the first ennobling truth of unsatisfactoriness. None of us are exempt from the third ennobling truth. None of us are excluded from the third ennobling truth, that there is an end of distress. There is an end of disconnection. There is an end of struggle and confusion and ill will and craving. None of us are exempt or excluded from this. We learn the tastes of freedom through the vehicle of sati. We learn the taste of freedom that comes with being able to turn towards and befriend rather than flee and disassociate. We learn the taste of freedom that comes with kindness rather than aversion. We learn the taste of freedom that comes with discernment, being able to begin to see how struggle is created and how it comes to an end moment to moment. We learn the taste of freedom through the the lived and embodied experiences of non-clinging that are... understandings that are cultivated. And the last of the teaching stories of Siddhartha is about, you know, the, the Buddha got up from the Bodhi tree, basically, and said, you know, it's done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, basically got up and said, I'm awake. But in that, in that, that wasn't the end of the story, was it? There's no story of the Buddha then in that moment, you know, going off into enlightened retirement, <laughs> finding the best cave in town, you know, and <laughs> leaving the world. Actually, instead, what happened? The Buddha turned towards the world, turned towards life, saw the immensity of pain with a heart that could tremble. And this was the story of compassion, that insight must have a translation, that understanding must have a translation into how we engage with the world. This practice is not simply concerned with individual improvement. It is concerned with how we engage with this world we live in, which actually needs engagement, and particularly the engagement of of insight and compassion. And the Buddha speaks about the heart that can tremble in the face of suffering and that can reach out, that can reach out. And Shantideva puts it so clearly in some of of his writing when he says, you know, just as I would instinctively reach out to touch a wound in my leg as part of this body, why would I not instinctively reach out to touch the wound in another as part of this body? And insight and compassion in this tradition, in this teaching, are not talked about as two different things. They are interwoven into a, a life which embodies freedom, a life which embodies integrity, a life which embodies compassion. As the Buddha put it, it is out of compassion that we practice it is out of compassion that we walk this path. And it is out of compassion that we endeavor to live this awakened life. So, thank you. So if we have just a couple of minutes quietly together, and then we'll have a break. Thank you for your attention. So we have some time for a walking period now and we'll come back at 8.45 for the last sitting of the day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org